Well, this morning, we want to continue with our sermon series on, uh, we've been talking about what the Bible says about courage and fear. And um, I don't know about you, but I, I just find that as I think more and more about these things, I grow in an awareness of how vulnerable I am to the, I guess, to just the predations of fear. <laughs> fear has a way of taking over my heart in ways that are outsized, sometimes irrational, sometimes rooted in what is completely rational. But I'll give you an example. From this past week, my dishwasher developed a new noise. And I don't, I am not a hypochondriac, but I've told you before, I'm a vehicular hypochondriac. Every time something goes on with my car, I'm sure it's the end of my car. <laughs> and it's an expensive end to my car, but I just have already diagnosed and researched and priced new dishwashers. I spent some time thinking about my dishwasher this week. Guess how much time, and it occurred to me only this morning, how much time did I spend praying about my problem? <laughs> Zero. Isn't that strange? I think uh, very often I allow the smallest thing. But by the way, nothing's wrong with my dishwasher. It seems to be working fine. It does have a new noise, though. Uh, but in all of this, the only thing, the point I'm trying to make is this. I realized even in this small thing, guys, very, very small thing, how easily my joy is robbed. I was sitting there listening to this new noise, and all I, all I could feel or experience was inner turmoil. I mean, I'm just starting to add up costs, and who am I going to call, and ah, i got to do dishes by hand, and grumble, 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 grumble. And really, at the root of that is there is a, an element of fear, really. I don't want to spend the money. I don't have the money to spend. How is this going to work? And very easily, I get sucked into this place. So far in our series, Seeking God in His Word for help with these things, we've talked about the command to fear not. We spent a Sunday morning on the most common command in the Bible. The, most, the thing God repeats most as a command is fear not. We spent a morning talking about that. We talked about the fear of man. I think if there is any fear that God's people needs to settle out in their minds what they're dealing with now in this season in our, in our own culture, it is the fear of doing things or not doing things out of a fear of what others will think if you say them or do them. We live in a culture right now that is particularly willing to censor people to really bring down the wrath of peer pressure and public opinion if you dare step out of line with what is the conventional thought on what's acceptable. And I think that God's people uh, have to really settle out into a place where we're comfortable being deeply countercultural in this area, where we're not going to be governed by fear of man. And this is not a new phenomenon, by the way. The Bible has a lot to say about that. We spent a morning on that. Uh, we talked about fear of dying, and uh, that was, in fact, last week. We also talked about fear of the unknown. And in all of this, the main idea that has the thread that's run through all of these messages is the truth, and I think it's a helpful one, at least it's been helpful to me in framing how I think about fear and courage, that we would have none of these fears if we were like God. And of course, that's really the point. God created the world, and He brought you into relationship with Him that He would be glorified in you, 
When I say that he would be glorified in you, what I mean is that he would be shown to be as excellent and satisfying and good and faithful as he is. And so the reason why you have these needs is so that God can be shown faithful, so that who he is as a shepherd can be put on display, that your cheerful confidence in him in the midst of your various fears, that he would be shown to be good, promise-keeping, faithful, powerful, that he shrinks from nothing, and that although you lack God-like powers, you don't lack God. And this is rather the point when we think of fear. And this morning we come to the fear of need. And uh, I think of all the fears when I mapped out the sermon series, it's the fear of need that I'm most vulnerable to personally as a human being. Uh, this is just how Josh Tate is made. I think we're all different. Some of I really don't struggle as much as others. I don't think. I don't think. Who of us knows ourselves as well as we think we do? <laughs> prove me wrong. I, every time I make a statement like this, I'm just like, okay, God's going to prove me wrong this week. I don't think I'm as vulnerable as some to the fear of man. I don't think. I don't think I'm governed as much as I've seen others kind of cowed and bullied by that. I don't walk around particularly afraid of dying. The fear of the unknown, I have over the years stepped out into the unknown, not with a lack of fear, but I've done it. But fear of need really does haunt me. I really hate my car. <laughs> and not because anything's wrong with it, because I fear that something might and just my whole life, it feels like I've had uh, different winter beaters and things do go wrong. But I live in fear of need. I don't want this thing to happen because of it'll cost money and I hate spending money. And I just am dominated by this in a way that I don't like personally. Have you ever been told to trust the Lord? I know I have. And very often I tell myself this. I know I've given the same advice to other people as well. It seems to me that it's very easy to throw around phrases like trust God. But it's very hard to live trusting God. I know that's the right answer. I know whatever need might come up in my life, whether it's an anticipated need or a real in-my-face kind of need, that the correct answer is trust God. He's got it. He's a shepherd. And I'm his. And I can trust in him. And that's one thing to know in my mind. It's another thing to live with my feet and every day of my life. And really the question is, why should we trust God? Overcoming fear, and I have experienced this practically in my own life, I would say, will always involve turning of our attention away from what is causing us to fear and toward the one who provides the help we need, not only to face our fears, but also to rest in the midst of them. A couple, I think it was two weeks ago, or maybe last week, I don't recall, I gave you the analogy of a child at, at bed. And if you had little kids ever in your life, you know that after they go to bed, sometimes they wake up screaming and they want you to come because they're scared. They've had a nightmare, there's something in my closet, and of course, when you go to their bedside, the, your first job as a parent is not to dive into exploring the fearful thing that they imagine, 
And the analogy I gave is, where do you think the boogeyman will start eating you first? Do you think he'll start nibbling on your head? Do you think he'll start with your toes? Do you think his spidery fingers will come up in the dark and grab you when you're in your bed? You don't say any of those things. Why? Because you want them to stop dwelling on the scary thing in their lives, and you want to turn their attention to something that is solid and good and helpful. And in my life as a Christian, I know I'm not a child, you're not a child, I'm not trying to infantilize you with that analogy. I'm just saying that that is a helpful way for me to frame the way I need to think about things that cause me to fear as an adult even in relationship to God. And that very often, like with my dishwasher, for example, which again is running perfectly, just has a noise. (laughs) I sat in my living room listening to my dishwasher and just felt my inner world strangely cratering. Just... I mean, I'm just going to a dark place. And all I could do in my conversation with God is just go, oh, God, my dishwasher. Dishwasher, 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 dishwasher. What am I doing to myself? I'm essentially saying to myself, where is it going to start eating you first? Where is it going to start nibbling at you? What's, ooh, explore what could happen here. What's the problem, right? And what I need to do, and what I do now do, is I start, and I've shared this with you also, about when we find ourselves in a place of fear, I need to talk back to God the truth of who He is. I need to say not, God, I've got a dishwasher with a sound. I need to say, God, you are the one who provided manna in the desert. I know that that's true. God, you're the God who, when your people were trapped and hemmed in by the Red Sea, you parted the waters, you made an escape. You are the God who purchased me at such an incredible cost on the cross. You addressed my deepest needs so generously, so abundantly, so amazingly. Will I now imagine that you're all of a sudden going to get cheap with me? (laughs) That you, who did that for me at such a great cost, will you not now... Give me what's needed. Here are some verses to think through if you ever find yourself with a heart that is consumed with a need. You're afraid. Psalm 34, 4 through 10 says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Matthew six twenty five through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." And then here are some verses. This problem is so common in my own heart. These are some verses that I am trying to commit to memory, just because I want something. I think when the Spirit runs to the well, it pulls up Scripture. And this is one of the great benefits of memorizing Scripture, is that uh, Scripture is the language of the Holy Spirit. And so these are some uh, verses. Some of them I have committed to memory. Others I am trying right now to do it. (laughs) This is part of my devotional life. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I find that when I speak these things back to God in prayer, uh, I find my heart is wonderfully covered with a peace that really does pass all understanding, as it says in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So guys, there in a nutshell, if you have to leave right now, you've you've heard the most important part of the message, (laughs) which is that the way to defeat the fear of need is to trust your God. Trust what He has said in His Word. He is a shepherd. And he keeps his promises. He is true. And when you bring him your, your, your requests, when you um, speak back to him the truth of who he is, he's greatly honored to be glorified in your life by being shown to be a faithful, promise-keeping, true shepherd God. And I think this is the key to defeating fear in my own life, yeah, for sure. My mom, until retiring very recently, worked in a Um, an emergency room. And when you go to the emergency room, they had a triage system in place. And her job at that emergency room was to assess where you were in the triage system. Triage, if you're not familiar with that term, is because hospitals are limited in some way, they have to prioritize care based on how serious your medical problem is. So when you come in, if I have the sniffles or something, their triage system will put me dead last. But if you come in with a broken bone or something life-threatening, they're going to make sure you get in right away to see the doctor. This is the triage system that hospitals have in place, and they do that because they have a limited number of beds, 
limited number of staff, limited number of days and the hours in the day. They have to do that so that the people who need it most get care first. I think very often, though, we, we think that God must operate on the same way. We think, I won't bother God with the prayer about my dishwasher <laughs> because I'm sure somebody somewhere has a much more serious problem than that. I'm sure somebody is praying right now who is in a very desperate crisis. And what I want you to know is that that kind of prayer is deeply dishonoring to God, and I'll tell you why. Because it presupposes that God is limited, that God is, has a only certain amount of attention He can give, that He only has a certain amount of power that can be unleashed, that He only has a certain amount of compassion and care, and really He is deeply involved with people who are in a crisis. He does not have problem time to devote to your problem, because on this grand scale of things, it's small. I want you to put that thought away from yourself completely. You know, when it says about in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, that's what that means, anything and everything. Because God is infinite. He's the God of the shallows and the deep. He is the God of your smaller problems, and He is God over the great, deep, big problems. And when we say to God, I won't bother you with this problem because it's small, you are actually betraying a very small view of God, that He operates on a triage system, that He's limited in some way. And so you're not going to bother Him with the small stuff because He needs to be freed up to work with the really big stuff. What a small view of God I have if I take that view of Him. But of course, He's infinite. And so He encourages us that anything, everything, Whatever is troubling you, whatever your fear of need is, bring it to me. Talk to me about it. Dwell upon the truth of who I am, and I will free you from that fear. I will give you a peace that passes all understanding and a peace that's rooted in you taking your view off the problem and looking at me as your promise-keeping, faithful shepherd God, whatever it is. This morning, though, uh, having covered the most important part of this conversation, I want to reframe the very way we think about need in our lives. And to do that, I want to spend time in a couple verses in Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, says this, "'Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, "'Who is the Lord?' Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I, I, I think that maybe a helpful thing I can add to this conversation about the fear of need or being courageous in the face of need is to completely reframe the way we think about needs in our lives. And the very first thing I want to point out is that human need did not come into existence as a product of the fall. Adam and Eve had needs in the garden before the fall. I think sometimes we think the need is the problem, or at least it's 
symptomatic of the problem. The very fact that we have needs wouldn't exist in the garden. And I don't think that that's true. If we go back to the beginning, I think we can say that our need became distorted in the fall into a fearful, terrible thing. But need itself existed in the garden, and we see this human need is represented by the fact that Adam and Eve needed to eat in the garden. This is not the only uh, time we kind of see this in our study of courage and fear. Several weeks ago, we talked about the fear of man. And fear of man is, is rooted in our desire to seek the favor of another. And really, that human impulse existed in the garden when we lived in perfect, untarnished relationship with God. Human beings did. And we sought favor in His eyes. But in the fall, that desire to please God, to live in relationship with Him, became distorted and broken and weirdly attached to the opinions of one another. Rather, we take it off of God and put it on one another. It's not that that human impulse came into existence with the fall. It's that it was distorted and made weird and fearful and catastrophically dangerous. And so I want us to see that need existed before sin ever was committed. And it's represented by their need to eat. In Genesis 2, we read this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. The main thing I just want us to see there is that God created Adam and Eve with the need to eat. They got hungry. And when they did, they ate from the many trees that God had provided for them there in the garden. God put trees in the garden that were good to eat, and chief among them was the tree of life. And he encouraged Adam and Eve to come to it and enjoy its fruit, because in so doing, they were looking to God and life with God as the treasure of the garden. All of their eating was thanks. And their enjoyment of the fruit was enjoyment of God himself. All of its flavor was a tasting of something like what God is. The enjoying of the tree of life was enjoyment of the giver of life, because ever since the creation of the world, who God is has been revealed through creaturely means. God put the tree there to, in some way, represent himself in the midst of the garden. And in the garden, this is seen and experienced most pointedly, I think, in the tree of life. What does it say about God that he created man at the first with this need? I think it means that God is not just the giver of life, but he's also the sustainer of it. He didn't just make Adam and Eve and their living creatures and now explore the garden. He gave them with a continuing, enduring need for life. They needed to be sustained by God, not just created by him. 
So God is not just the giver of life, He is also the sustainer of life. And this reveals a really important truth about God in the midst of your needs. He is glorified not only just through our need for Him, but more than that, through our continuing dependence on Him. He gives us life, He gives us what we need, and He sustains it. He does it again tomorrow. This is how God operates. God did not just give us life as a one-time event where we walk away from Him blessed but independent. He gives it in a continuing way where we walk with Him in daily dependence on Him. He is the giver of life, but, and this is very important, again, for our discussion we're having this morning, He's also the sustainer of it. This was surely the lesson for the wandering Israelites who were instructed only to gather enough manna for the day's need and not to hoard any against tomorrow. This is why Jesus, when He taught us how to pray, instructed us to ask God to give us our daily bread, not enough for the year, (laughs) not enough so that I could feed my face today and not have to think about God showing up with what's needed for a long time. And this is why in Proverbs 30, we read, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Last week, I made the statement that the human desire to be free of need is the same as wishing you could be free of God. We've been called to a life of continuous dependence on God. And the way I think we should reframe need in our minds is need is a thing, a God-given means of grace that keeps us tethered and connected to God. In the absence of need, would you worship? I don't, that, that's a controversial statement maybe, but I do believe that need is the very fuel of worship. I don't know that we can worship God if we feel no particular need for Him. And so, although we don't want to view God as useful, we don't want to view Him as a means to an end, He does use need as a means of grace to keep us tethered and connected to Him. He does not say to the Israelites, what would be good for you is if I gave you all the food you're going to need for the rest of your time, and you can just go about your business and not think of me again. He wants the Israelites to remain vitally connected to him in a day-to-day kind of way, and that finds expression in him giving manna out in only a daily portion. And the writer here in Proverbs uh, very wisely asks God, Don't give me too little and don't give me too much. Keep me right in a place where I am tethered to you in dependence. I don't want to have so much that I'm independent of you or tempted to feel that way. And I don't want to have too little that others would look at me and say, you call that God of yours a shepherd God? (laughs) And I'd be tempted to break your laws. That's essentially what he says. We need to dwell on this truth. God spoke the world into existence, and He created Adam and Eve in His image in order that His glory might be made visible in the midst of His creation. He made us with needs in order that those needs might be met perfectly in Him. 
However, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the forbidden tree and thereby chose independence over continuing dependence on God, it meant that all of their God-given needs, which had been satisfied perfectly in the garden, would be unsatisfied or at best imperfectly satisfied from then on. And we see this in the consequences of the fall. In the garden, Adam and Eve had gotten everything they needed for life from these trees that were in the garden, but now they would struggle to wrestle a living from a hostile earth, in thorns and by the sweat of their brow. And mankind longs to return to our original home, and by that I don't mean the Garden of Eden. Our original home was found in God himself and not in a place apart from him. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a way back home. When Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, I'm the way home. Jesus said he's the bread of life, and those who eat will never hunger again. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Our needs can once again be satisfied perfectly in him. And we come again to Proverbs 38 through 9, because I think it provides a very helpful way to think about the needs that we will experience in life. I'm going to read it again. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If we backed up just to scooch to verse 7, the human author of this chapter begins this section by saying this to God. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. And then he launches into verse 8 where he talks about being given neither poverty nor riches. And the Hebrew is a little ambiguous in its meaning, but most tra translations render it before I die, but some go with until I die. Either way, it seems to me that what is being expressed in verse 7 is the heart of a person who's facing the future, and that's right where you're sitting this morning. Guys, if the Lord should tarry, we're all looking at a future. There is a span of days that somehow we've got to cross and navigate between we enter that narrow in, <laughs> the grave. And over the course of the days that I have left between now and when I die, if experience is any guide and if God grants me years ahead to live, if experience is any guide, there are going to be all kinds of needs that come up. There are going to be crises. There are going to be all kinds of unexpected things that pop up that are going to be needs. Whether it's a money need or some other need, it's all going to happen between now and when I die. And that's what this person is writing. He's saying, until I die, before I die, God, I'm going to ask this of you and don't deny me this thing I'm going to ask. And then interestingly... Well, he starts by saying, put lies and vanity away from me, but then he makes this statement about poverty and riches. In light of this sober but well-informed vision of the future, he makes this request to God, spare me from the poverty and riches. Give me only what's needful for me. The Hebrew word that is translated in the English Standard Version as needful or if you're a King James person, a person that says convenient, the word in Hebrew means literally an allotment or a prescribed portion. 
And the main idea behind the use of this word, it seems to me anyway, is a very humble sentiment that says to God, give me the amount of supply and the kind of supply that you deem fit. Give me what's needful. And really, the person is allowing God to define that. The idea of what's needful, a prescribed portion, encourages us to differentiate in our minds between needs and wants. I remember when my son Bowden, he's a grown man now, now he's, a, he's older, uh, but when he was really little, um, so you can't make fun of him for this because he was basically a different person back then, <laughs> he would say to me when he was really little, like two years old or something, that he was hungry. And I would say, oh, okay, here's some carrot sticks, here's a string cheese. And he would say, no, 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 I'm hungry for chocolate cake. (laughs) And I was like, no, you're not hungry, you want chocolate cake. That's different. Hunger is a need. Your desire for chocolate cake is something completely separate and different from that, right? And we all know the difference between being hungry and wanting chocolate cake. We know the difference between needing shelter and wanting a mansion. Of course, we all know that. But here, it does uh, encourage us to differentiate between these kinds of things. What we need is always going to be somewhere north of poverty and south of riches. And of course, it's no surprise to most people that that this person would ask God to spare him from poverty. But it is, at first, surprising that he would also be asked to be spared from riches. But remember that very often, a desire to be free of need is one and the same in the human heart as a desire to be independent and free of God. There is something in the heart of all of us sons and daughters of Adam and Eve that would prefer to be godlike than to live in a state of needy reliance on God. And riches are intoxicating to a fallen human being because we think that they are finally the means of living a life that is free of need. But have you ever considered that really at root, we want to be free of God, or at least free from a need for God? But think about this for a second. He made you mortal so that you must look to him in trust for the resurrection. He made you limited in knowledge and wisdom so that you would lean not on your own understanding, but instead look to his word for guidance. He made you feeble and frail so you would rest in his power, not your own. He made you limited in, inf- in authority and in influence so you would rest in his sovereignty. What other choice do you have? And he allows us to experience need precisely so that we would look to him as our provider God. We need need, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This speaks to this dynamic of needing need. Be content with what you have, don't desire riches, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
The great danger of poverty is that it tempts us to walk away from God. And the great danger of riches is that it tempts us to walk away from God. In our poverty, we might be tempted to say, well, some shepherd God is. And in our riches, we might be tempted to say, who needs a shepherd anyway? The starving and impoverished person takes matters into their own hands by stealing and thus profanes God. It would be a mark against the father's reputation if he so neglected his children that they were released as a menace on the neighborhood. So God, you could say this back to him as a prayer, for your name's sake, give your children all that they need so that we are not tempted to sin against you. I used to work as a police officer, and any police officer will tell you what part of town is the most crime-ridden. It's the poor side of town. The poor side of town is statistically where most crime occurs. Crime goes up with the demographics of poverty. But although it probably does have a higher crime rate on the poor side of town, it really cannot be said that there is less sin in the wealthy side of town. There's plenty of sin in the wealthy side of town, too. It may not manifest as often as crime, but there are crimes being committed against God's law on both sides of the track. But the sins that are committed on the wealthier side of town might be more along the lines of tearing down barns and building up new ones, might be turning a deaf heart to the needs on the other side of the tracks. So when confronted by a need that tempts your heart to celebrate your dependence on God, when you're confronted by a need that tempts your heart not to celebrate dependence on God, you can look to Him in trust. You can speak back to Him as promises. You can pray for that which is needful for you. It's a bit like... Uh, when, if you're a renter, you don't worry about things breaking down in your house, right? But when you own the house, then you worry about it all of a sudden. It goes from being the landlord's problem to your problem. And when we understand that we have a shepherd and that we're his, we can then understand that my car is God's car. It's his problem, if you want to think of it that way. I also want us to think of our need... Need our need-meeting efforts within the church as an effort to help people stay tethered to God. I think very often God's means in the midst of this fallen world to address needs is going to be through His people. Uh, his church is His plan A. There is no plan B. Man is God's method. And one of the ways that we meet needs within the body of Christ, part of our testimony to the surrounding community, is that... Um, we help one another. Part of this involves being open about our needs. That's a tough thing. And part of it is will involve us um, sacrificially working to meet the needs of one another within God's family when they arise. 